so it is a great job. It's not a day goes by where I don't regret going for it. And just straight away, I just took to it and thought, yeah, this is something I really want to do. Are you searching for your ideal career, fed up of your daily grind, or simply want to hear some inspiring stories? Then you've come to the right place, because it's time to do a job you love. It's time to get work savvy. Welcome to episode six of the Get Work Savvy podcast. I hope that you're well, and I hope that you've enjoyed the last few episodes. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, then hi, my name's Liam Gardner. It's my firm belief that you should be able to find or create a way to get paid for your passion. Now, so far, we've heard from a range of professionals, including Owen, a drum and bass producer and record label owner, Jade, who runs Steam Schools, Liam, who's built a successful gym business, Maya, the animator and illustrator, and finally, Catherine, who runs not one, but three successful businesses. Each episode, including this one, gives you an insight to what each person does, and more importantly, we learn how they found a way to get work savvy. Now, if you want to know more about my motivations for starting this podcast and hear more about the format of this show, then don't forget to check out the introduction episode. For those of you who have returned, then you are not going to be disappointed by this week's guest. Before we find out a little bit more about Callum, though, don't forget, if you've listened to one or more of these episodes, then you've got the chance to enter our launch competition. It's quite simple. All you've got to do is leave a review and a rating in the Apple podcast or podcast player of your choice, and then you're able to enter. You can tell me what you like and if you've got any suggestions for improvements. And I'd really love to hear them because I know that I'm not perfect and there's so many more things that I potentially could be doing better. This will not only help the show to grow, but it will also give you a chance of winning one of three prizes. The first main prize is a £50 and then there's two additional £25 Amazon vouchers up for grabs. So to enter, simply subscribe, leave your rating or review and send me a screenshot using the email address liam at getworksavvy.com. Entries must be received by the 21st of the 12th, 2018, and then the three lucky winners will be announced in the Christmas Eve episode. This week, we're going to learn about what it takes to be an air traffic controller. Now, Callum's going to explain this much better than I will, but this week's interview got me thinking about how on earth people find jobs like this. And I know from my experience that most of the colleagues I've talked to in learning and development often tell me that they accidentally found their profession. And as Callum will explain, this wasn't necessarily an obvious choice for him either. So if you are thinking about what path to take, either at the start or halfway through your career, then remember to explore all the different avenues that you have and try and keep an open mind. An example of this is considering my awful ability to spell and use the correct grammar. Thank you, technology, for digging me out of a hole most of the time. I actually found myself teaching others English at one point in my career. Now, if you were going to have asked Anyone I grew up with, my family, my teachers, or even some of my colleagues, I bet few of them, or more likely none of them, would have said that at one point I'd be helping people pass their functional skills English exams. So the point I'm trying to make here is, don't just write something off because it seems hard, or not necessarily the expected path that many others assume that you're going to take. Why not take a chance on doing things, if it feels right? So enough about me, let's dive into this week's episode, and be sure to listen out for our first four-legged guests too. I'm going to give you a summary of all the key takeaways at the end of this episode, no matter what career you're thinking about going into. So without any more delay, here's the interview portion of this episode. So hi, and thanks to Callum for joining us on the Get Work Savvy podcast. Could you just start off by giving our listeners a brief overview about what it is you do and a little bit of background about yourself, please? Yeah, no problem at all. So I'm an air traffic controller. I work at the National Air Traffic Centre down in Swanwick, just outside Southampton. I've been doing that for 
about 13 years now. I applied in 2004. Sorry, I qualified in 2004. I applied a few years earlier. And that's about it, really. I mean, I've done several roles within that. So my main job is talking to the pilots, telling them where to go, making sure they're doing the right thing, all that kind of stuff. But I also work in the, the training section as well and help train the new trainees as they come in off the street. Excellent. It's always been a fascinating role for myself and I've selfishly <laughs> found you to ask you about this because it interests me. But for people who haven't necessarily heard too much about air traffic controller, I know you said you mentioned you, you talked to the guys in the air, but apart from seeing small little snippets on perhaps a documentary or, or films, is it quite automated or is it like, is there a lot of, I'd imagine there's quite high pressure like mathematics that you might have to do? Could you give people a bit of a background about your day-to-day duties and what things you might be doing when you're actually behind the control panel? Yeah, so we sit in front of a radar and we can watch the aircraft as they travel through the UK. The UK is split up into lots of little areas called sectors and you have to qualify on a specific sector. So I do two. I do the Clacton sector, which is over East Anglia. And I also do Daventry, which is a massive bit of airspace right down the middle of the country. So the aircraft file a, a flight plan. They tell us where they want to go, when they want to go and at what flight level, so what height they want to fly at. And it's our job to make sure we can do as much as possible to ensure they fly on that route. So to a certain degree, it is quite automated. If we didn't do anything, the aircraft would basically take off, go to its whatever level it's filed on whatever route, and just fly its own course through the UK, which would be fine if there was just a handful of aircraft. But we deal with thousands and thousands of aircraft a day. So our role is essentially making sure that what they file and what they plan doesn't impact anyone else. And it's our job to make sure that you get the most economical, the most efficient, and obviously the safest route through the UK. Once I'm finished with my sector, I'll transfer it onto another sector. So we've all got our own radio frequencies that we transmit on. And once the aircraft comes to the edge of my sector, I will transfer it onto the next relevant sector, and that controller will carry on doing essentially the same job in a different location over the UK. So yeah, to, to a certain degree, it's automated. They're trying to get it more automated because obviously the more automated it is, the more aircraft can fly through. But it will never be fully automated. It will always need a human at the end of it to resolve any kind of conflicts and make judgment calls, basically. Yeah, excellent. I imagine that, like you say, with the hundreds of thousands of planes that are traveling about, that as much as the computer system might be good, you're always going to need that human interaction to make sure that nothing horrible is to happen. I actually live over the Claxon area, so I will sleep a bit better at night knowing that I'm in safe hands when uh, when you're on shift. <laughs> Yeah, quite a busy sector, actually. So it's a bit further south. Can I come up the Thames estuary, South Thames, uh, coming into London? That's probably the busiest bit. Hmm. Um, and then above where you are in Clacton and up into East Anglia, that tends to be aircraft going eastbound out over the channel to Central Europe, the Far East, Scandinavia, things like that. They kind of hit the end of the North Sea and then just fan out all across Europe. All right. So is it just commercial then, or do you have private, and I guess the military have their own system but need to check in with you? Yeah, that's it. So the, the military is a big, um, they work independently, so they don't have to talk to us, provided they are within their kind of delegated areas. So there's a massive area just to the north of East Anglia, and the military have that airspace. Uh, there's a flexible kind of agreement, where if we want to go through it, we've got to ask their permission. They work alongside us doing a similar job, but they are very much independent. Their procedures kind of dovetail with our procedures so that we can both operate where we want and where we need to. The main bulk of our traffic is commercial you have to file a flight plan to fly in the airways the pilot has to be qualified to fly in the airways whereas the private pilots there's almost like free open airspace lower down so they can basically take off and fly around and don't have to talk to anyone provided they stay within these areas so we don't 
tend to get a lot of kind of social flying at the levels I work at. Some of the sectors do, that are a bit lower down. Mm. Uh, but we deal with a lot of, vast majority is um, commercial, whether that's passenger mainly, but there's also cargo involved in that as well. Fantastic. So on a shift, I guess, like you said, you have hundreds of thousands of airplanes going through any one shift. But how much interaction do you have to make? Is it really rare or do you often have to double check things and adjust people as and when needed? We are constantly talking to the pilots. Mm. So as an idea of numbers every year, the, the UK or NAPS in the UK National Air Traffic Service deals with 2.4 million flights a year. So you can imagine at any one time there's lots of aircraft there. They all want to be at the same place at the same time. They all want to be arriving at certain times of the day. So we're constantly talking to each plane. When they enter our sector, we say hello. We make sure that all their equipment is shown correctly from our point of view. And probably, it's hard to put a number on it, but during a busy session, you probably talk to each pilot maybe a dozen times over the course of about 10 minutes. Wow. So it's, it's a lot. Yes, but you're constantly telling them, you know, turn left on a heading or climb to this flight level or, or, or different bits. It gets really interesting when there's bad weather around. Mm. Nobody wants to fly through bad weather for safety and passenger comfort. So it takes it away from that automated side. So that's when you have the really, really interesting bases when there's, there's bad weather around, thunderstorms. Thankfully, we're not in a part of the world where we get really severe weather. We don't get any tropical storms or anything like that, which would cause grief. But on bad weather days, it can be quite interesting. Recently, with the snow as well, when the airfields are shut because of snow, obviously the aircraft can't land where they want to land. They can't just stop in the air. They can't just park up and wait for the snow to clear. Mm. So that's when we've got to find somewhere for them, somewhere safe for them to get them on the ground as soon as possible. That's something that seems obvious now that you've said it, but something I'd even overlooked was like even the weather you have to take into account for and keep a track on that. Do you have like a special weather service dedicated for you guys or are you just dialed into like the, the government uh, system or something? There's an um, agency at the Met Office that deals with purely aviation uh, and the computer system we use works on predictions. It predicts the trajectory of an aircraft and it uses weather for that. Mm-hmm. So if we plug in all the weather data every three hours off the top of my head, I believe, and it automatically updates the trajectories based on the winds at high level and stuff like this. So there's a lot of information that comes direct from the Met Office. Any forecast turbulence or other storms, thunderstorms that can get in its way where we get hold about that in advance. And the, the routes can be adjusted based on the weather. But normally what they do is called um, regulate the traffic. So instead of saying it's 100% of the traffic can come through, they might reduce it to 75% for that day because they know there's going to be weather and they know it's going to up the workload. Mm. So the weather plays a huge part in what we do. Every shift before we start, we've got to be in early to brief on uh, the wind direction, the wind speed, uh, and any forecast weather that day. I suppose you have to do a handover with somebody who's taking over your particular role as well. Yeah, so it's a 24-hour operation, uh, 365 days a year, and that's exactly it. So when I start a shift at half six in the morning, there will be a night shift controller in from 10 o'clock the previous night. So I will go into position. I would have briefed myself on the weather and any procedures that have changed for that day, anything I need to know about that's going to happen during my shift. I'll get my headset, I'll go to the radar, and the controller that's in at that time will give me a, a handover of what's happening anything that he thinks might affect my role in the next, you know, half hour, hour session that I'm plugged in. And then I'll go through the traffic, you know, the, the planes one by one, tell me what they're doing, where they're going, and anything else that needs to needs to happen with them. I'll sit down, take over from him, and then he will go home probably, probably for a kit after a night shift. Um, and then I'll, I'll sit there for about an hour, hour and a half, and then do the same thing again. The next controller will come across. I'll give him the handover, he'll take it, and then I'll go for a half hour break. And then that's that tends to be the kind of, pattern for the day really 
Yeah. So I take it you have day and night shifts? Yeah, so we work on a three-shift pattern. So we've got morning shift, afternoon shift, and night shifts. So the morning shift runs till about half one, and the afternoon shift runs till about 10 o'clock, and then the night shift runs through the night. Are any of them like any easier or any more stressful? Are there any that like stick out, or are they all equally as, as intense? Um, no, they've all got their moments. Uh, morning shift and afternoon shift. The traffic tends to go in waves almost, so for different reasons. Stuff going off to, or sorry, coming in from America tends to land early in the morning. So that's just because of the time difference when they leave the US, what time they want to land at Heathrow mainly. Heathrow's got like a nighttime restriction. So during the night, Heathrow's not open. Mm. And then later on in the day, depending on destinations, they tend to all arrive in bunches. So, for example, just before lunchtime, around about 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock at night, they're busy times, depending on what side of the country you work on. But for Clacton, they are very busy. End of a Sunday, Sunday afternoon is very busy on Clacton. Uh, all the business travellers coming back from short-haul trips in Europe tend to come back Sunday night. Okay. So we're very busy on a Sunday night. Night shifts are quite quiet. We tend to get a lot of cargo flights. The traffic numbers that go through the UK on a night shift are a lot less. So. Oh, good stuff. So... Other than you see in Die Hard where they're like trying to set up a new system really quickly and stuff, I have no idea of the, the technical side of things and how much communication you had. I thought perhaps that it would be like the, the image that I have is perhaps somebody kicking their feet back and uh, having a coffee while everything's just happily going on around them. But Yeah, there's a lot of hands-on. There's a lot of talking. Pilots don't always do as they're told. So there's a lot <laughs> of stuff going on there. There's a couple other films. Have you ever seen Sully? The film about the, um, yeah, the, oh, the yeah. landed on the Hudson River, yeah. Yeah, because they, they questioned whether he should have done it, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a bit in that. It's, it's not for very long, but there's a bit of air traffic in that. And that's probably the most realistic I've seen, I think. Okay. And then you've got Pushington. Have you seen Pushington? Uh, With Billy Bob Thornton and John Cusack. I, I recognise it, but I don't know why. That's like a caricature of air traffic. It really is. It's it's very Americanized and very dramatized. But you see quite a lot of it in that film as well. So there's not many out there. Bit of a, a sneak peek for for anyone wanting to check that out. Yeah, that's it. The role itself is there's such a, a great amount of camaraderie. We've all kind of had busy days where you rely on someone else to help you. We work in pairs, so when one guy's talking to the aircraft, the other one is making sure that everything is safe, that the level they want to go to is achievable, that there's nothing in its way, you know, this kind of stuff. So you work in massive teams and ultimately you work with a guy sitting next to you as well. So there's a great deal of camaraderie and kind of friendship. So it is a very social job as well. So we do a lot of things outside of work. It's important that you get on with the people you work with to a certain degree. Yeah. So they, they put a lot of effort into that. So it is a great job. There's not a day goes by where I don't regret going for it. So yeah, I guess by working in that team, because I, I, I naturally thought it might be quite a lonely job, but but like you say, if you're working in a pair, then you're putting that trust in that other person and, and needing that, that close yeah. relationship. So you do trust that other person is quite important, I guess. Yeah, no, brilliant point. Yeah, absolutely. So even if you're working in the tower at an airfield where there's, I don't know, there might only be 12 of you there, you're all in it together doing the same job. So you're kind of bonded by that, really. It's it's definitely, it's a huge, it's a huge teamwork thing, um, for sure, wherever you work. With the pair, I guess you have to rotate just to, to make sure that there's no like no kind of favoritism on who works with who or anything like that and to, to make sure that everyone's getting the, the best out of each other. That's a, It's slightly different depending on what area that you work in. But where I work, uh, we have a, a tactical and a planner and the planner role is a, can be uh, a bit less busy, a little bit less intensive. So it's, it actually helps sometimes to be able to do that when you can just have a bit of a, a relax almost. That's well, the relax is the wrong word, but it requires a time of it. When you're talking to the planes, it can be pretty hectic, pretty full on. 
Um, so yeah, you definitely will take through all the seats to make sure everyone is, you know, getting getting the best of both worlds really, and, and being able to have a bit of a quieter time when there's not much of traffic there, as well as the busier times. Everyone kind of pulls their weight. Uh, that's where the teamwork comes in as well, because I don't want to see one of my guys that's you know constantly getting the busy sessions and being hammered by the end of the cycle. You know, I want to be able to do my turn, help them out. And then ultimately, it benefits everyone. So yeah, there's there's massive amounts of respect for what everyone else is doing, almost. So it plays a massive part. Fantastic. So how did you how did you know? Let's say when you were growing up, what did you think you wanted to do when you you got a job? How did you find out about this career? It was a bit of a weird one. So I always wanted to be an architect, randomly, totally mm-hmm. unrelated to air traffic. Um, always wanted to be an architect. When I looked into it more and started looking at uni courses and, you know, it was a seven-year course and all this kind of stuff, I started going off the idea, to say the least. Um, <laughs> I, I worked with some people who were uh, uni graduates. One of them had done film studies, and he was working mm-hmm. as a lab tech in a hospital, paying off his student loan. So I wasn't enamored with university because I didn't have a reason to go. I didn't want to go and just get a course and get the debt and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was on the hunt for another job for a career that maybe didn't involve university or if it did, at least it would give me a target as to what course to do. Um, and I found, or I should say my mum found an advert in um, the Daily Record, I think it was, or the Daily Mail mm-hmm. for air traffic control. I'd always been lucky enough when I was a kid to go on lots of holidays. We used to go away every year and, and I loved it. I loved the whole traveling. I loved the airport. I loved all that kind of side of it as well. So I just looked into it more, came for a visit. I visited Stansted Tower. I managed to get a visit to the air traffic college and just straight away I just took to it and thought, yeah, this is something I really want to do. So I applied as soon as I could. At the time, you had to be 17, you now have to be 18. So I applied as soon as I could on my 17th birthday, went through the process and, and was lucky enough to get um, selected to the college. So yeah, it's not the, the usual route, to be honest, but um, yeah, glad I got there. Excellent. So, well, firstly, has it affected your passion for travel? Do you like go to the airport and is it tiresome now or, or do you still enjoy that? Has it had any effect on that? No, it's not at all. I'm lucky enough that I travel a fair amount. Essentially, I work in a big building with no windows and I just stayed at radar. It's so far removed from an airport that all that side of this thing, you know, I still enjoy that and, and all the rest of it. And it's quite good sitting on the plane, flying through the UK, knowing there's one of your colleagues that are controlling the aircraft. I mean, there's only about 400 controllers that work at Swanee, four or 500 controllers in that region. So the chances are I know who's, who's working the aircraft. So it's quite, it gives you confidence. Um, the amount of aircraft to go through yeah. and the almost minimal amount of incident they have, it gives you confidence that it is the safest form of transport. So it's, it's a proud thing to be a part of. Mm. And yeah, it, it, it does make you feel quite good when you're on the aircraft, knowing that you know, you're know you on the receiving end of that service rather than the one giving it. Mm. And that you're part of giving those clients, those passengers, that reassurance that everything's going to be all right because you're down there making best route for them. Absolutely, yeah. So you talked about how you went to the college. Yes. And you said there was a different route. So I guess there's different routes that you can go to um, to qualify. In the UK, there isn't really. What I meant by that was a lot of the people that become air traffic controllers, they've either got an interest in air traffic or they've always wanted to do it or they wanted to be a pilot or they wanted to be involved in the industry somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and it never really came on mind for me. It was just something when I found the advert and looked into it. Okay. So the, the college, you have to go through the college. The mm. college is owned by and run by NATS as well. So in order to get a license in the UK, you have to go through the college in some form. So that's quite an intense process to get selected for. I can't remember the rates off the top of my head, but I think it's about 2% of people that apply that get in. Wow. So it's a very small number. 
is there like a particular skill or particular qualification they're looking for for like entry to that? I guess maths is quite a, a key thing. Um, it is, yeah. So, so the official qualifications are five GCSEs between A and C, and they have to be an A and C in English and math. So it, on the face of it, it's not that high, but it's very much a kind of practical element that's needed as well. So mm-hmm. you need to have a bit about you with regards to being resilient, confident. You need a bit of a thick skin. You need to just need to be able to move on from things if it doesn't quite go as planned, because like I said earlier, the planes aren't going to stop. You've just got to dig in and, and get the problem sorted. So you do need to be quite resilient. A lot of the skills that you need are intangible. They're not something you get tested on academically at school. So that's why the entry criteria is so low. But once you do get in, there's lots of spatial awareness tests and aptitude tests, and they go into psychological interviews and stuff like that. It sounds pretty full on, but it's not It's not really. It's just to make sure that the guys that get to the college have got the best possible chance of qualifying from there. And like I said, it's not academic stuff. I was at college with an astrophysicist, a doctor of chemistry, and unfortunately, they never made it through because they were almost too academic. They were too black and white. You need to have a bit of grey there, be a bit less analytical and a bit more creative almost. So it's, it's definitely, it takes a certain type of person. But saying that, all controllers are different in their own way. There's no set formula almost. I can understand that. You must... Just because you've got like a physics degree doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be good at problem solving. And yeah. when the pressure's on, you're going to need to know that. So that's totally understandable. Um, thanks for that insight. That's it. And there's no one size fits all with air traffic. Every day is different. You might have the same planes going in at the same time, day after day, but the wind conditions might be different or one can be running late and wants to go faster. One of them could have an issue. You know, there's so many variables that one size doesn't fit all. So you can't just pen a, in this case, I will do this as a result. Every day is different. You've got to take each day on its merits. And I suppose that's what keeps you alert and alive because you just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. So every day is different. It sounds like a bit of a cliche with a lot of jobs, but <laughs> it, it really is. You, you don't know what you're going to go into. There could be, I don't know whether it's the big one, but there could be many other things. I mean, recently the French air traffic have been on strike mm. or there could be a system change. So um, up in Scotland, they recently changed the computer system. So that has a knock-on effect on what we do as well. Mm. So every day is different. Pilots always have different requests based on you know what's happening on, on the air craft at the time whether they're running late whether they're early yeah so so there's so many variables that every day is different and, and you've got to just get on with it you can't just it's not as much as we talk about you know roads in the sky or, or that kind of thing that's the analogy that a lot of people use but there's no traffic lights you know they're, they're constantly moving so you've just got to get stuck in and, and get on with it yeah I assume, and I don't know where I've got this assumption from, but I guess that you have to speak English. Is that like the industry standard across the world? Does everyone, like when you go into a different airspace, is it a different language that pilots might need? The international language is English. So in theory, if you're a French pilot flying in France, speaking to a French controller, you should be speaking in English. Mm. Um, That's all across the country. That's an ICAO standard. So ICAO is the International Civil Aviation Organization, and they set the rules across the world. Um, and that's one of their standards. So if we have foreign controllers that apply, they've got to meet a specific English proficiency level in order to be accepted. But yeah, I think around the world, it depends on native speaking the native language, but ultimately the, the international language is English. So on paper, they should all be speaking in English. Yeah, obviously, uh, <laughs> things might not necessarily happen to the instruction on the paper. But yeah, no, that's that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Could you share with us like what your biggest challenge has been, whether it was 
trying to get through the the college or you found perhaps the first at the time you took control what have you found the biggest challenge so far uh, absolutely the biggest challenge has been the training it's quite cutthroat there's lots of gates we've got to meet certain levels if you fail twice i mean there can't be recourses but essentially you you could be asked to leave the college just for failing two parts so it's quite high pressure my training wasn't smooth to begin with i had some bumps along the way i was quite young i did it a little bit like uni life so i was kind of away from home for the first time and and all this kind of stuff. My mates are at uni and you're hearing these stories, but it's not like that at all. It's almost, it's even harder, I think, than anything I've done academically. Uh, it was just full on. Every day you were getting your folders full of information and then being tested on it the next week. So I failed part of the course, which was a real wake-up call for me. The thing I remember was I was due home that weekend. I remember having to phone my parents and say, look, I've failed this course. I'm not going to be coming back this weekend. And I used that. That was kind of the fuel for my fire for the rest of the course, to be honest. thought I'm never ever making that phone call again and I didn't thankfully so I kind of knuckled down got on with the bookwork got as much as I could from my instructors and yeah managed to get through it it was hard work it's about 18 months after college all in it's full on it's written tests verbal assessments practical tests there's so many procedures you've got to know and understand and use practically so there's so many different elements to it so that was by far the hardest actually talking to the planes when I got to Swanwick uh, it was more exciting rather than anything else. That's what you'd been building up to, and you'd been on the simulators for a good couple of years. So, yeah, talking to the planes was the, the kind of culmination of that training. So, yeah, it was quite exciting more than daunting. So it's almost like the reward. And I guess that, like you say, having gone through that experience where it was almost taken away from you, like you failed this one, if you fail it again, then then you're off. Then that gives you that motivation and must be hugely tempting, especially when you're seeing kind of your peers and your, your old friends that are going off and having this amazing time but knuckling down and and getting on with it and working hard to get the output of you qualifying was worth it in the end and yeah I think that's that's kind of like the theme that I've found with speaking to people is doing the hard work everyone looks at perhaps some social media of people and like oh what a good life they've created but we don't necessarily talk about all the hard work that's gone in so um so congratulations on on getting through that Callum that's yeah very, really tough I, I don't think I'd be able to put up with that pressure <laughs> I think I'd I'd be one of the geezers that would be cut you hear that a lot really to be honest it takes all types to be a controller it absolutely does and I think a lot of people could do it it's got a bit of a, a mistake or a stigma about it I'm not quite sure but it it's definitely something that if you boot your mind to it and you've got those kind of basic qualities which are not they're not rare qualities you know a lot of people are resilient and a lot of people have got the kind of creativity to to move with whatever's happening and a lot of people have got that so it just takes that that hard work and i found that out the hard way unfortunately i was enjoying myself a bit too much and it was purely that phone call i remember thinking i never want to pick up the phone again and make that call to my mom and have to say i mean she thought i was kidding i was like no it's something that has given me a drive through the rest of my career as well as a controller so I'm one for being prepared now so whatever's coming up I try and do whatever I can be prepared trying to think up what could happen not worry about it but just be prepared for it and um, I think that's stood me in good stead since then so in a way it was a bit of a blessing in disguise it wasn't so much a failure as a a wake-up call or a, a point in the right direction. So I know that you stumbled upon it by seeing the newspaper advertisements but Looking back, would there be anything that you'd do different? Like, do you think you did it a bit young or would you do the same given the chance? Nowadays, it's a year older. So I applied when I was 17, but you now have to be 18 to apply. So 
I wouldn't say it's too young. There is certainly, I do some recruitment interviews now as well, so I recruit new trainees. And you do see sometimes when people come straight out of college, they might not have the life experience to give them that resiliency and the, the, the ability to take on responsibility for their learning. So a lot of schools these days almost teach you to pass an exam, whereas that's not the way our college works. They give you all the information and then you, you have to learn it and you have to understand it and use it in different circumstances. So it's a bit of a different ballgame from um, usual academics. So sometimes we have kids that come straight out of college, haven't had another job, hadn't had any life experience almost, and they struggle. They really struggle. But on the flip side of that, you can have a, an 18-year-old who's had you know, three jobs, a part-time job, hey, working in a chippy, didn't do any harm. <laughs> and maybe I've traveled a bit. I've had to live off their own, you know, traveled the world a bit, maybe taken a gap year, things like that. So they can be the same age, yeah. but have that totally different way about them. So I think it definitely depends on, on what you've had to do and how much, again, it's about taking responsibility, going and finding yourself a job when you're at school at the weekend and be willing to do those extra bits. That really does shine through uh, when it comes to the interviews. Excellent. So how did you progress into that role, that training role? Was it through experience and uh, position of coming up and then you just applying for it? Or Yeah, so the first two years as a controller, they try not to let you do too much else. They, they just want you to get used to it, get your feet under the table and just kind of consolidate that and that and the main task that you've got of controlling the planes. After that, then the doors kind of start to open on different opportunities. I couldn't think of another job that is least dead end, if that makes sense. There's so many different avenues you can take. So I decided that I wanted to go back into training. My training experience was, like I said earlier, it was pretty hard going. So I thought, well, look, if I can use that to make it easier for other guys coming through or at least share my experience so they can learn by my mistakes rather than you know making them themselves, then I thought you know that's something I definitely wanted to do. So the first step I took was to become an instructor. So after a couple of years, I went on a course and I qualified as an instructor, which means basically I can sit with new trainees when they can uh, and they, they work on my license, but I train them on how to be an air traffic controller. And we've done that on the real world on the live radar. So that was that was quite something do that that was great to be a part of and from there i then moved on and done some work at the college just a little bit of classroom stuff and again simulator training and stuff like that just to help the new guys coming in and alongside that i still kept my own radar license so i still done maybe about a week a month controlling planes and then the rest of the time i'd go off and do these other bits so it's good i mean currently i'm back at swanick and involved in the training section again and one of the supervisors in there and we are just sorting out all the courses, making sure that the guys, when they come out of the college and they get posted to Swanick, that they've got everything that they could possibly need to be successful. So it's really rewarding, actually, and seeing some of the guys that you've helped through when they then validate and start doing it on their own. Um, it's really good. Yeah, it's really good. So I think training's moved on a lot since the, the 10 years since I went through it. And I'd like to think that's partly because of the work that me and the other guys have been doing in the training section. Fantastic. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is, sir. Do you have any open days or anything like that? I guess it's quite... It's a bit of a closed shop at the minute, a little bit. Yeah, mm. the option is very like, secure almost. So trying to get a visit in there is quite difficult. I suppose that it needs to be with, with all the kind of 9-11 stuff. And after that, it, it, if it wasn't already, that they just got locked down to, to the nth degree. Yeah, security is pretty tight. Getting into the option is difficult. And we're currently um, in the process of moving options as well. So we're in a bit of a temporary one at the minute. So mm. visitors are even less likely to get into that, to be honest. So it's it's not the easiest thing to get a visit. If somebody was applying, 
the best bet would be to get in touch with one of the airports. They're normally a bit more amenable. It's not unachievable, but it's very difficult. You kind of have to know someone, and by that, I mean someone important. I think if somebody got in touch with me, and I'd struggle to get them in, but it's always. Yeah. So your your particular location, then? I'm guessing that you're not at an airfield. No. No. I'm at a disused quarry. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Former quarry. That's where the building is. Yeah. And the the new place is it like a luxury place that you've got? What can you kind of give us a, a brief overview of the the kind of s- setting that you're in? Yeah, so it's the same building. We're not physically moving the building anywhere. We're still there. It's just a different room within the building. So it's it's just modern. It's a new computer system. It's all the kind of just modernising air traffic essentially. Mm. Um, the system we use that runs the computer in the background has been the same system that's used for decades. So it's just modernising that to meet the new kind of rise in, in traffic. So we're still in the same room. Uh, sorry, still in the same building. We're just moving rooms. Um, there's only... Okay. Yeah, well, Nat basically operates two of these centres in the UK. There's one at Swanwick where I am. There's one in Presswick in Scotland. Um, and what the mm. new room will allow us to do is be more connected with Presswick. So there's a lot of things at the minute. We've got to pick up the phone and then phone Presswick sector to get things sorted. But the new system will allow yeah. a lot of that to be more automated ultimately more efficient and leading to more aircraft really so that's basically the setup of what the new the new room's going to be like excellent have they got the projected how many more aircraft they'd like to to take capacity wise or i guess that also depends on the actual airports themselves yeah absolutely that's that's a big sticking point so obviously there's all this stuff going on at the minute with Heathrow trying to get the third one way a lot of the other airfields would like their own second runway instead of looking at a huge increase in traffic Ultimately, the airport authorities that own these airports, that their businesses, that they want to make as much commercial success as they can. So they're obviously trying to do what they can individually. And then we've got to net all that together to ensure that it's safe for them to do so. I think the projections they were talking about was made about 3 million flights in 20 years. So we're currently at 2.4. So you think another, mm. well, that's another 25% rise. So it's, it's a lot of aircraft um, extra, but what that looks like, we don't know. Will that be bigger planes carrying more people or will it be smaller planes going to smaller airfields or personal aircraft? Do you know what I mean? Will we end up having some kind of, I don't know, own thing that you use? You know, there's so many things that could happen in the future that it's difficult to say. I mean, it moves at such a speed. Even, you know, mm. Amazon are talking about delivering parcels by drones and stuff. Well, that'll have to be, yeah. air traffic will have to be involved with that. You know, they can't be doing that around airfields. Or if they go too high, then they'll be in the airways and stuff like this. So there's lots of challenges coming up. So what it's going to look like, I don't know, which is quite exciting in a way. Would you guys also get involved with, because haven't the UK been um, granted permission or, or have won the, the European spaceport? Am I right in saying that? Is that? Has that affected you? I don't know, actually, to be honest. I don't know where that's at, but it's definitely something. I mean, space travel is going to be, I think it's going to happen. There's so many companies with SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and stuff like that that are doing it, that it will happen at some point. And that is absolutely something that's got to be worked into the, the air traffic of the UK at the minute. I, yeah, I'm not sure about it. I was being the spaceport. I've not, I've not really heard much about that, to be honest, but it wouldn't surprise me. So, yeah, that's going to be another huge challenge. They've obviously got different needs to what commercial jets have, to what drones have, to what Joe Bloggs and his little private plane that wants to take off from a grass field and go for Jolly. You know, they've all got different needs. So, yeah, trying to knit it all together is the is the interesting bit. Do you have many issues with things like drones and, and things like that? Thankfully, the sectors I work on are quite high level, so I, I don't really talk to anything below about 20,000 feet. Okay. So, 
that you don't really get drones that can go that high at the minute, or if you do, then they're they're almost not commercially available. But yeah, around airfields we do get them absolutely. With the things Nats is really looking at at the minute, they're partnered with different drone companies. They do courses to teach people how to fly drones safely and give them licenses and stuff like that. So they've kind of embraced it in a big way from a not just a commercial point of view, but also a safety point of view. Mm. So yeah, there's definitely around airfields you do see the odd muppet that tries to get a nice aerial shot of a plane landing. Do you know what I mean? And it's, I think it's just the, the lack of awareness at the minute. The technology's moving ahead so fast that it's people aren't quite aware of how it impacts other things. So Nats is doing a big push at the minute to try and publicise the fact that drones are such a an issue at the minute. So but I'm sure that they're getting on top of it. There's, there's been I don't think there's been any accidents because of drones yet. Touchwood. Um, that continues and the work Nats is doing is to try and further that as well further the understanding yeah yeah i mean like you say technology just moves so fast and it's it's making sure that people are educated when they're buying these kind of products because it's so easy to to just go and pick one up there's no you know if you if you wanted to to buy a, a rifle or a, a gun of some description you'd need a license <laughs> so yeah, absolutely yeah so it's kind of like making sure that's regulated and and like you say not to kill anyone's fun but just to make sure everyone's safe that's it yeah 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 there's, there's a place for it for sure and i i, I love drones do you know what i mean I, I don't have one but i've attempted a few times and um, i think they're pretty cool and with my i help out with the local american football team and i've had thoughts you know filming the games from do you know what i mean it just looked really cool but mm. on the flip side of that is you have to do it responsibly so yeah you're absolutely right it's not about killing fun or killing innovation or anything like that it's just about doing it in the right place and understanding how it fits with everything else that's going along in the sky i think Max has been quite good at realizing that they're not going to stop it they're not going to ban it it's it's a, a fight they're never going to win so they've kind of embraced it and they've taken on the the courses to teach people and they're, they're raising the awareness so they're highly involved with the development of them as well so which is really good it's good to see Yes, yeah, it, like you say, it's that education point, and and instead of fighting something that clearly isn't going to go away, like as soon as the wheel yeah. was invented, you know that that was going to change things, and technology changes, and it, as soon as it's available, you can't then turn the switch off just because because of like a particular thing. So making it an education, yeah, absolutely, and, and not necessarily like a stamping out situation is the the best route of action in my mind yeah they're quite good at that they're quite forward thinking so yeah it's good fantastic i heard a while ago that lasers were also a bit of an issue does that ever come up like you say your planes are so high that i can't imagine there'd be a laser that powerful and and being able to to get to the the pop cockpit but you'd be surprised you would really yeah yeah you'd be surprised um what day are we on we are on it's thursday isn't it so mm. i've done a night shift monday night and a pilot reported a laser on Monday night just this week, and it was quite a big thing. So the lasers you can get in this country, if I was to get a, you know, like a laser pointer that you use in school and stuff like that, mm-hmm. that would have very little effect. But over the internet, you can get quite powerful lasers mm. um, or lasers that are not designed, to, you know, they're designed to be part of a system or a, or a bit of equipment that you know they get taken out or whatever, mm-hmm. and they they can cause some damage. So obviously the light bread. And if you point it at something 30,000 feet away, it's going to spread quite a lot. So what's a little laser on the ground is actually quite a big, bright, blinding light in the cockpit. Mm. And it's actually it's illegal. It's against the law to um, endanger the aircraft by using a laser. So we report it to the police and they take it really seriously. It's not in the UK, I don't think, but there has been reports around the world about actually like temporarily blinding a pilot. Wow. Yeah, so if you think it's the cockpit at night, you're sitting up in the dark, there's not a great deal of light. And then all of a sudden you get this, you know, bright, powerful green light or red light or whatever it is. It's um, 
Yeah, they can yeah. be quite debilitating. So they're really, really serious. They're taken um, really seriously on Monday night. There was quite a bit, you know, quite a few reports done about it, and you know, we got to tell all the other aircraft in the area. And nine times out of ten, mm. it's a bunch of kids just messing around. You know, what I mean, not realizing what they're doing. It's that awareness thing again of not realizing yeah. the impact it's having. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's definitely an issue. Thankfully, it's not. It's not regular. You know, they're not rare. They're not rare mm. occurrences, but they don't happen every day, thankfully. So, yeah, but it is something that they take really seriously. It's just that education point, like you say, and and not to kill anyone's fun, but but you know, yeah, it, when you kind of think about the damage and, and the potential effects that that could have it's such a such a danger so i, I can't yeah. believe that it was monday night like so is how often would would you say that kind of thing happens every now and again or like um a bit yeah like, it's only it's a few times weekly, a year monthly. yeah no yeah. Just, just a few times a year it's not mm-hmm. it's not um it's not anything to be concerned about it's just something that you know that they take seriously when it happens um, and like I said, it's only on the rare occasion it can actually be um, debilitating to the pilot most of the time. They're aware of it. They, they know about it as well. They know what happens. So they've got their own ways of mm. of making sure they're not affected. So it's not a um, it's not a huge safety issue as such, but potentially it could be, you know, and uh, mm. it's something that they need to be cracked down on, um, which is why they take it seriously and, and it gets reported to the police whenever it happens. Yeah. What happens in regards to fireworks night? Is there anything that affects you then? No, not massively. They don't go as high to affect commercial aircraft. So again, if somebody was doing it at the end of a runway, do you know what I mean? Or, or very close to a runway, then yeah. that would be something that the airport would deal with. You know, they'd probably send, mm. again, they'd send the police around to just have a word. I mean, at Swanwick, they're well above the fireworks, not an issue. But by all accounts, it's quite impressive to see a fireworks from uh, above rather than below. Mm. Yeah, can only imagine that. Yeah, how beautiful that must look. Got to plan my flights better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, bonfire night, New Year's Day. Yeah. Get yourself off and home. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. So, if anyone was interested in getting into this line of work, what kind of groups or are there any individuals, anything to follow, like any agencies that you would recommend kind of looking into? In the UK, Nats is the only provider that does air traffic over the skies of the UK. So if you want to be an air traffic control in the UK, you pretty much have to go through NATS. The best bet is to go to nats.aero, N-A-T-S.A-E-R-O, and they'll have all the information about what we do, how you can apply, anything that's going on at the minute. There's a big social media push as well, so you can follow them on Twitter. We've got a Facebook page, uh, and they post a lot of stuff on there. They're doing currently a day in the life of a trainee. So they've actually got, you know, real life trainees that are at the college at the minute and they're talking about how they're getting on and what they're doing and, and why they enjoy it. So there is a big recruitment push at the minute. That's probably the best place to look. So it's it's something that they're trying to get out there, trying to get the name out there by using social media not a lot now. So that's probably the best places. Good stuff. Nats, it's not just controllers. We make up a small part of what they do. Okay. Yeah, they've got engineers and researchers and people that design the airspace and all this kind of stuff. So it's not just air traffic. So if somebody's got an engineering background and is interested in aircraft, then they can go down that route, you know, and help design the systems that we use. There's so many different ways into mm. it. Some of the, the more management type jobs, uh, they're not controllers. You know, they're there. So my boss at the minute in the training section trained as a psychologist. Um, she'd done all our degree level psychology and stuff. And then she came in and she deals with training now and, and helping out from that point of view. So there is many, many 
different jobs and roles available at Nats. So it's not all about sitting in front of the radar. That's a really good point, actually, that to, to have a, a fully functioning system, you're going to need different roles with different skill sets and, and people from different backgrounds. Like I work for a training company and, and I'm I'm the product developer, so I, I make some of the more interactive kind of digital products for us. But all oh, right, excellent. We have teachers, we have the HR department, finance. You know, you th- things that you don't necessarily think of when you when you think of that stereotypical role. So brilliant. Thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. I know you said Nats is your organisational body, but is there? Do you have like things like unions and things like that, or? Yeah, there is a union that looks after controllers and a few different industries. So yeah, they're quite heavily involved in our working conditions and things and making sure we've got rules about how long we can work for any one time, uh, whether that mm. be you know, days in a month or days in a row or you know, hours within the day. So there's set limits because it can be quite full on. Quite, you know, it takes a lot of concentration. The union have, have negotiated all these different bits for us just to look after this. So they work really well, Nats and the unions, a lot of the time. They have the moments, obviously, that's what they're there for. But nine times out of ten, they do get along and they work quite well. And they both get the same end goal. So it, it works quite well, actually. It's quite a good, good partnership. Good stuff. Are there any kind of um, hidden benefits or rewards that you might get? Uh, not so much these days. I mean, in days gone by, before my time, we used to get quite good deals with some of the airlines or you know, some of the tour operators, holiday operators, that kind of thing. You used to be able to get like air traffic deals or uh, aviation industry deals, that kind of thing. But in this day and age, when everyone's trying to cut back and after the, the recession and austerity and all this kind of stuff, those kind of perks, unfortunately, have, have kind of gone a little bit by the wayside, which is a bit of a shame. But we do get what's called FAM flights, familiarization flights. Okay. So we basically apply to go on these flights and with different, uh, several different companies. And you can get into the cockpit as well and, you know, talk to their pilots about what they're doing and when they're doing it and how that affects us and vice versa. So they're pretty good. It's a weird it's a weird industry at the end. So I spend my day talking to pilots. But in all honesty, I've got no idea what they're doing. They're hundreds of miles away from where I am. I'm telling them to do something. I don't know how they do it. They just do it. So sometimes you can have cross purposes. So especially if something unusual is happening, I can be asking them to do something. They're not replying to me. Why are they not talking to me? You speak to the pilot and they say, well, I've got like this 20-point checklist I'm trying to go through um, and you're not on it anywhere. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. So it's good to be able to see both sides of that conversation sometimes. So the fan flights are good for that. And we have regular courses where the pilots come in and we go through different scenarios and they tell us what they would be doing and we say what we would be doing. So um, there's a lot of that stuff goes on, which is really interesting. But as far as perks and hidden benefits yeah they're kind of getting a little bit less and less these days to be honest yeah that's understandable like i just wondered because you never know but interesting that you said about having them orientation days really because for work i went to the national college of high-speed rail in birmingham oh yeah and part of their training setup, they have, um, it's all to do with the controllers. And then, so this particular part of the training, the controllers have all their screens so they can see what's happening. But they've got like a mock-up of a oh, wow. train driver's seat and the screen that they'd see. So they can see actually how their messages are received in the trains. So I guess it's a similar beneficial thing there and, and makes total sense now that you've brought that up that although you might be saying to a pilot, I need this information or you need to readjust your, your flight path or whatever, you don't necessarily know what their steps would be unless you talk to them. So, yeah, no, that's... Uh, yeah, that's exactly it. And often um, they might be dealing with something on the aircraft, you know, if one of the passengers is sick or um, there might be an issue with the flight crew or the stewardess has come in to ask them about something. So there's a lot of things going on as well on the flight deck that, you know, I'm totally oblivious to. I, I don't see that, obviously. So 
it's um, it's definitely good to get both sides of it. I guess you have like a you give them a, a time period of grace, and then we just have to repeat the communication if they haven't got back to you. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I mean they're good, but they'll understand that if the radio's really busy. Then they'll listen out. I mean, how they manage to pick out their call sign and just be constantly talking is quite impressive. It's when it's quiet, and they obviously realise it's a bit quiet, so they might be doing another job here and there. But um, yeah, ultimately they've got to respond to us. The safety of the aircraft is their priority. So if we tell them to do something, they might think endangers the safety of the aircraft, which is highly unlikely, but ultimately that's their responsibility. So nine times out of ten, actually 999 times out of a thousand, they'll do exactly as they're told. I and mean, it's only normally a good reason for not doing that. So, yeah. That's actually a really good point that I thought that perhaps you'd have different channels for, for different airlines or aircraft, should I say. But yeah. but yeah, that must be such a skill to have as a pilot. Yeah. <laughs> like having all of this uh, chatter going on and, and you needed to watch out for your call sign there. That's, yeah, absolutely. That's something like you say that perhaps gleamed from being up there and, and experienced it. They're very good at it. And a strange, sometimes I can be sitting in the option talking to the guy next to me and all of a sudden, I don't know, it could be in an Arsenal loss the night before or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It can be in the right mood. And then all of a sudden, he'll stop talking because the pilot's talking to him. He'll stop talking. He'll give a ream of instructions in this clear, concise voice listen to the pilot read it back yep all good and then he'll turn to me and start ranting again about the arsenal game it's, <laughs> it's a skill you develop where you can just stop listen go move and then go again yeah and it must be the same for pilots they just subconsciously hear the call saying right blah, blah, do all that and then carry on doing whatever they're doing <laughs> it's um it's something that comes with practice yeah and um, when you first start with all the obviously pilots come from all over the world and the different accents and sometimes it can take you a while i think did they say what i think they said or was that the call sign I was expecting, you know, so it takes a bit of getting used to where you think, right, I'm, I'm starting to get the hang of this now. And, and, and it's definitely a skill that you don't really get when you're at college because there's people pretending to be the pilot, mm. but they essentially are all English, native English speakers. So, yeah, when you when you get to the real world and there's pilots from all over the world talking to you at the same time, it definitely takes a bit of getting used to. Mm. And like you say, getting in that environment is the only way you, you're going to learn your trade as such, like you've done all the yeah. the theory, but it's actually learning on the job. So, so yeah, I totally understand that. That's it, yeah. I can also understand your, your colleague being able to um, switch off from moaning about Arsenal because <laughs> <laughs> being an Arsenal fan myself, uh, he probably welcomes the interruption so he just gets to take his mind off it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, true. And you've been a Rangers fan. I'm, I've I've had my moments over the years. But... Touche, touche. Yeah, no. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> May our success return soon. <laughs> Magic. Yeah. You know, well, I suppose it depends who the bit in charge, kind of. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. I won't get into that on here. <laughs> <laughs> so, winding up the interview a little bit, then, have you got any wise words that you have, or any quotes that that you've heard that have helped you through getting through, like perhaps your training or inspiring you to keep doing what it is that you're doing yeah so i love a good quote to be honest and the first one isn't really a quote as such but it touches on what i said earlier as i learned the hard way to only worry about what you can control for me that's that's a big thing there's so many things happening in the world at the minute and there's so many things kind of on the edge of your life that you know you could spend a lot of time worrying about and it's, it's the same with air traffic if you worry about every little thing that happens or worry about what ifs then you kind of grind to a halt. So I try and live by just worrying about what I can control and doing as much as I can to be prepared for it, you know, the different outcomes and control what I can. So that's definitely something that I think stands me in a good stead for the role and even in the training as well. You're never going to please everyone, but I can't worry about that. I can only worry about doing the best job I can. And 
you know, sell a V on as long as I think I've done the best I can. And that's what the feedback suggests. Then there's no point in worrying about any of the extra stuff. So that's fantastic. And a superb quote there, Callum. Thanks very much for that. Um, something that even people who are not looking to, to get a different job or people who are, are just wanting to have a bit of inspiration, I think that's really valuable. And quite often people worry about stuff that they have no influence in yep. whatsoever. So, so yeah, that's perfect. In regards to any books that you've read recently or, or that you've, you've reread because it gives you some inspiration or anything that you could suggest for our listeners to, to perhaps check out? Yeah, so the book that sticks out and almost where the don't worry about the things you can't control comes from is uh, The Chimp Paradox. So it's a bit of a cliche at the minute. It's a bit of a buzzword. A lot of people are talking about it. I think it's for good reason. Not everything in there that I kind of agree with, but there's definitely bits in there I can take about how your mind works in different situations and what's going on in other people's heads almost during different situations if it comes to a meeting or something like that. And there's definitely a lot of stuff in there that you can pick out and use in everyday life. I found that really good. Excellent. So I've not heard of that one myself, so I'll definitely have to check that out. And again, I'll put that in the show notes for people who are are interested in in reading that themselves. So thank you very much for suggesting that. Yeah, there is another one which is unrelated to um, anything in particular, to be honest, that we've spoken about so far, but I'm a big American football fan. Okay. So... I love my American football, and I've recently read Pete Carroll's autobiography. He's the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, uh, and he's written an autobiography, and it's very much about his philosophy growing up and, and how he's stuck to a very similar philosophy throughout his life, which has is, is made him very successful. And there's a lot of stuff in there that you can take. You don't have to be an American football fan. You don't have to be a sports fan. But there's lots of stuff in there that talks about how he got through difficult times in his life and stuff, and that is, that's well worth a read as well, I think. Fantastic. I, I love kind of reading books that you think are, oh, it just sounds a bit interesting, but I'm not necessarily yeah. sure where I can relate to this. Like one example I've got is, is from the guy who is the guy behind Pixar and he wrote his experience about creating a, an environment where everyone is candid and everyone has honest feedback with people, even if it's like the, the top man to the, the little guy. So they all, they all rewatch the film at different various stages and they will pick it to bits to to make it the best it can possibly be and not just you know treading on eggshells not to hurt somebody's feeling but having that that approach where actually everybody's in the same team and it's not a personal attack on anyone yeah it's just to to be the best that they can be so that's something i definitely recommend people checking out now that does sound quite good it's definitely something i live by that for sure no one gets any better by hiding the truth or sugarcoating feedback or whatever so absolutely it's uh, it's called Creativity Inc. and it's by Ed Catmull. I'll put it in the show notes for people who are listening <clears throat> and who'd like to check it out. But I mean, I love Toy Story and that's kind of where I got sucked into that one because I saw um, a picture of Buzz conducting on the front cover of it. And uh, and I was generally interested in films and especially animations. I was, I was fascinated when they first come out and still love watching them. And and yeah, it, it absolutely surprised me of, of how good that book was and, and helped me with receiving and giving feedback and not necessarily taking everything to heart, but also realizing that if you don't give that honest feedback, then how's that person going to look to strive to improve or, or as a group improve what it is you're doing. So definitely if you've not checked it out, I can recommend that to you. Excellent. That's on my, that's on my reading list. I'll put that on for sure. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. If people were interested in perhaps uh, checking in with what you were doing or, or wanting to contact you with any particular questions, would you mind pointing them to how they might be able to reach you? Yeah, no, no problem at all. Um, the best bet will be my email address. So do you want me to give you it now or do you want to just put it in the notes or whatever afterwards as well? Yeah, you 
you could put it in um, now and then I'll put it in the notes for anyone who's running or, or driving and can't necessarily right. <laughs> write it down. So that'd be great. Okay. Yeah. So the, the best way to contact me will be by my email. Uh, it's Callum MCC. So C A L U M M C C 84 at gmail.com. Feel free to drop the message and um, yeah, just any questions at all and I'll be happy to help. Fantastic. Absolutely appreciate that. And I'm hope uh, anyone who's interested in that kind of world will perhaps get in contact with you and, and see where that will go for them. So it's been absolute pleasure speaking to you, Callum, and thank you very much for giving us uh, an insight on the uh, the world that you work in. Yeah, no problem at all. No, it's been my pleasure. It's, um, it's a great job. I absolutely love it every day. I'd recommend it for anyone. I know we've talked about different entry criteria and having to be a certain mindset, but I, I do believe that everyone's got that somewhere. So don't put it off. Apply, see how you get on. And give it your everything. Great job. Now, I hope that you agree. That was another fascinating interview and really thanks to Callum for giving us his time. I hope you didn't forget about Lolly and Oscar either. I know what I did when I was editing the show and I almost jumped out of my skin. But um, here's this week's key takeaways. Good communication is vital. If you aren't giving clear instructions or listening properly in any role, then sooner or later, mistakes will be made. Prepare for the unexpected. If you have a hurdle to overcome or a problem to fix, then you need to get on with it. Just like the planes that Callum talks about, the world isn't going to wait for you to figure them out and you need to act instead of burying your head in the sand. Equally, you need to find your fuel and excuse the pun You need to get your head down and do the hard work and find what it is that's going to motivate you to go that extra mile. Equally, that hard work is often hidden. You don't see all the hard work that people put in on your Facebooks and Instagrams. You can enjoy yourself, absolutely, but not too much. Because quite often when other people are saying, oh, I'm not revising, then in secret they are. You've got to find that right balance for you. Don't forget as well that you need to do more than just enough. You need to think about more than just passing the exam. Most of the people I've talked to so far have had a deeper knowledge of what it is they need to know and have been responsible for their own development. As Callum rightly mentions, you need to change with technology too. Don't fight change, try to move with it because quite likely that the change is going to happen with or without you. Remember that all the information from this show, including the links to the books that we mentioned, are found within the show notes of this episode or you can see them by visiting the website getworksavvy.com forward slash episode six and that's the number six subscribe to the show to be in with a chance for winning that launch competition be sure to send me a screenshot of your rating review until next week take care i hope this has helped you find a way to get work savvy and speak to you soon